Well, let us uh, continue in worship this morning as we turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. The invitation at this point is not to stop our worship, but to continue as we consider the words of our God as he speaks to us in and through his word. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he hath said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray. Father, we need your help. We need the help of the Spirit. We need to be convicted. We need to be brought near to the Lord Jesus. Our eyes need to be fixed on him. Throughout the week, we encounter many distractions and temptations. And so we are here, Lord, to uh, refocus our eyes upon you. And so we ask that you do that for us, that through the preaching of your word, you will turn our gaze upon the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, as always, that you will convict and save sinners, that you will continue, Father, to sanctify the saints. And above all, we ask that Christ will be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A fork in the road. That's how I think of this particular section, specifically of verse 6. Now, you understand what a fork in the road is and what it is meant to do. A fork in the road will set a trajectory. A fork in the road will set the course of your trip. But more importantly, a fork in the road forces you to make a decision. You can't remain in the middle. And when you come to that particular point on the road, you better know where to turn. You certainly don't want to come to a fork in the road and not know which direction to take. Now, questions can be a type of fork in the road. Because questions can set a trajectory. Questions can function as that. In fact, let me show you an example of a question that might just work as the ultimate fork in the road. One day, as Pilate stood before Jesus, and as the Jews were clamoring for Jesus' execution, Pilate asked a true fork in the road question. What is truth? That was the question. What is truth? Why is this a fork in the road question? Well, for the simple reason 
Here is where humanity is divided on that question. What is truth? The answer to this one question can set, can set the trajectory of an entire life, an entire religion, and even an entire civilization. False and true religions are divided on that one question. False and true spirituality is also divided on that one question. Just think about it. When the question is asked, what is truth? You can't afford not to answer it. Why not? Well, because what you believe to be the truth will eventually determine how you live, how you think, and how you decide to spend your life, including your energy, your money, your time, etc. Some questions force us into a certain trajectory. What we find in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 is also a fork in the road type of question. It is a highly, highly consequential question. But allow me to be a bit more specific and apply this analogy to our study. The question asked by the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 can set you on a theological trajectory. In fact, it can determine how you understand the entire book of Acts and even the entire Bible. In that regard, you can't afford to ignore it. Let's read it again. The disciples asked the Lord Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Three words, restoration, kingdom, and Israel. That's a recipe for a fork in the road type of question. Believe it or not, the theme embedded in this question has created a dividing line between denominations and even individual Christians for centuries. And it is all on how you answer it. So this is where we'll begin this morning. A complex question. If you're following the notes, a complex question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, as we come to this fork in the road, let me see if I can provide some theological map. The map is meant to do two things. First, show us how we got to this question. And second, show us where we need to go moving forward. So, how did the disciples get to this point? The answer is threefold. Why did they ask this question about the kingdom restored to Israel let me give you a map. First, the question was prompted by the words of Jesus. The question was prompted by the words of Jesus. Consider verse 3 of Acts 1. As the resurrected Lord interacted with his disciples before his ascension, the Bible tells us that he spent 40 days talking about what? You can read it. It's right there in verse 3, unless it changed Somewhat sometime during the week. Well, he talked about the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom. It is only logical then that the disciples had already been thinking about the kingdom for at least 40 days. The very words of Jesus would have created a sense of expectation and anticipation. So their question about the kingdom is not out of place. I read several commentators that were rather harsh on the disciples. They were talking out of ignorance and impulse and all these things. And I thought that's too harsh. I believe this is expected. They had been hearing the Lord Jesus talk about the kingdom. Second, the question was properly rooted in old Testament expectations, old Testament expectations. These were Jewish men. 
So this question is not out of the blue, right? This isn't impulsive on the part of the disciples. The Old Testament has plenty of places in which a restoration of the kingdom is talked about. The only problem with the question was that the disciples had a limited view of the kingdom as seen in the fact that they asked about the kingdom being restored to who? Israel. Israel. They were limiting their view of the kingdom to a nation, namely the nation of the Jews. It seems that they had a, an ethnocentric understanding of the kingdom. However, the restoration of the kingdom that Jesus had in mind was far greater than what the disciples understood at first. But we'll get to that when we consider verses 7 and 8. The third, consider this. The question assumed the centrality of Christ in the restoration of the kingdom. Notice what they asked Jesus, will you, right? They're asking Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples already had a very Messiah-centric understanding of the Old Testament. They understood they were in the very presence of the one of whom the Old Testament was about. Obviously, the disciples had much more to learn, but this much they knew. Jesus had the power to restore the kingdom. That much they knew. Now, remember that this conversation is happening right before the risen Jesus ascends into heaven. To say that this is one of the most, if not the most critical juncture in redemptive history would not be an exaggeration. The one who died on the cross and was buried is now talking to them about the kingdom he has a glorified and perfect body. Expectations are quite high. The disciples know whatever he's saying, this is a big moment. This is a big moment. So this is how we got to this fork in the road type of question. It was prompted by the words of Jesus Christ himself. It was rooted in Old Testament expectations. And it assumed the centrality of the Messiah in the restoration of the kingdom. Those are kind of the signposts leading up to the question. Now, the question is, where do we go from here? What do we do now? Well, let us see what Jesus said. And this is an astonishing response. An astonishing response. Verses 7 and 8. So they asked about the kingdom. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What happened in verse 7? Can you help me figure that out? Let me give you three different approaches to deal with the words in verse 7. The first one could be the dismissive approach. Jesus dismisses the question as a misplaced concern on the part of the disciples. Some people may reach that conclusion as if Jesus were saying to the disciples, we have more important things to worry about. Cut it out, right? It's not for you to think about these things. Now, I don't believe that to be the point. Let me give you a second alternative to understand verse 7. The second alternative is the dispensational approach. The dispensational approach. How many of you have heard of the word dispensationalism before? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. The dispensational approach. 
This approach would say this. Jesus redirects their question to a different issue. Some have concluded that his answer in verse 7, Jesus takes the disciples' questions and changes the direction to a different subject. Meaning, instead of talking about Israel, let's talk about the church age. Right? In other words, it is as though Jesus were saying, let's focus on the plan for the Gentiles. We'll save the conversation about Israel's kingdom for another time. I call this the dispensational approach because dispensationalism teaches the future and literal fulfillment of Old Testament promises to Israel, not all of which have been fulfilled in Christ. So there's more to be expected. Now, where do I stand? I don't believe that to be the point either. I hope you're not disappointed. There's a third alternative. And this one I call the covenantal approach. So we have three approaches, right? The dismissive approach, I hope you don't take that one. The dispensational approach and the covenantal approach, which is the one I believe to be the correct one. It goes something like this. In verse seven, Jesus actually answered the disciples' question about the restoration of the kingdom, but in a way that went beyond their understanding at that time. Jesus' answer reveals that the kingdom is not confined to an ethnic group. It goes well beyond the boundaries of a single nation, which is what the covenantal approach affirms. In fact, I taught on covenantalism this morning in our foundations class. And I will spend an entire semester teaching on covenantalism in Spanish. And so it, it, it is a long, long, long theme. Therefore, what Jesus says in verse 7, I believe to be a reference to the full consummation of the kingdom. Those times and seasons are not for us to know. Now, we'll return to that when we get to verse 10 and 11. For now, let me direct your attention to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus begins to answer the disciples' question about the restoration of the kingdom by drawing their minds, listen to this, to three specific realities that they would have understood on the basis of their Old Testament knowledge as Jews, but they couldn't quite connect just yet. Jesus is about to exponentially increase their understanding of the kingdom and its implications. In other words, and in modern vernacular, the disciples are about to have their minds blown through the answer. First, in answering their question about the kingdom, Jesus speaks of the, can everybody guess? The spirit. In answering the question about the kingdom, Jesus speaks of the spirit. Notice, please, that this is not the first time Jesus makes a connection between the kingdom and the spirit. He already did that in verses 3 and 4, where he talked about the kingdom and then told them to wait for the spirit. This is not the first time he makes a connection between spirit and the kingdom. But let's go a little further. In the gospel of Matthew chapter 12, As the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of, remember that accusation? You're casting out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebub, right? Jesus started talking about what? A kingdom. This is how Jesus answered the accusation. Specifically, Jesus said this, 
in Matthew 12, 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid, what? Waste. In other words, Jesus is saying, how can I cast out a demon by another demon? That's a kingdom divided against itself. Are you following? He's, he's talking about a kingdom. And then Jesus said these powerful words in Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did you see that connection? If I cast out demons by the power of the spirit of God, then that means that the kingdom of God has come. In light of that, let me ask you, why then does Jesus speak of the spirit coming upon the disciples in answer to their question about the kingdom in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? <laughs> Interesting faces. The answer is simple. The coming of the spirit marks the coming of the kingdom. And they are about to see this with their own eyes. When we get to chapter two at the day of Pentecost, but the coming of the spirit, which was anticipated in the old Testament also marks the authority of Jesus. This is mind blowing. This would have been a massive source of encouragement to the disciples because they are now beginning to understand that this man, this Jesus, not only rose from the dead as if that were not impressive enough, but he also has authority to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Spirit. This is massive. Now, second. So first, in answering the question about the kingdom, he speaks about the Spirit. Second. In answering their question about the kingdom, Jesus speaks of himself. After speaking about the spirit, he tells the disciples, and you will be whose witnesses? My witnesses. This is incredible. That little possessive pronoun, my, might just be one of the most powerful possessive pronouns you will ever see. You will be my witnesses. It means that this kingdom that Jesus is speaking about, that is about to be restored, is his. Is his kingdom. Not only is it his, but it is also about him. This is amazing in saying you will be my witnesses. Jesus is making the claim that he is both the king and the content of the kingdom. In this regard, I believe uh, Stephen Wellam and Peter Gentry were correct. They are two theologians in determining that many of the claims of Jesus were indeed staggering, staggering. And what they say what they said about those statements can easily be applied apply to that little pronoun, my. Listen to their words, and I quote, Jesus understood himself to be the eschatological. What is eschatological? End times, end times. Jesus understood himself to be the end times goal of the entire Old Testament and the sole authoritative interpreter of his teaching. 
In other words, Jesus views himself as sharing authority with God and bringing all God's promises to pass in himself, end quote. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, he is indeed claiming that the kingdom, along with all the expectations raised in the Old Testament, were being fulfilled in himself. The kingdom belongs to Christ, and the kingdom is about Christ. But this is not surprising, is it? In Matthew's account, what did Jesus say to the disciples as he sent them out in Matthew chapter 28? He said this, all what? The Great Commission, I'm going to give you a clue. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus wasn't given a percentage of the authority. Did you get that? Not just a percentage. He has all authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. It doesn't get more comprehensive than that. This, my friends, is kingdom language. These are the words of a king. Now, third, in answering their question about the kingdom, Jesus speaks of the world. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Is that big enough? The kingdom over which Jesus has all authority and over which he is king is not confined to an ethnic group. It is much, much larger than that. This kingdom consists of a worldwide new humanity made up of both Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The new humanity that Jesus is creating by the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed, Paul calls in Ephesians 2.15, one new man. One new man. This is why... I call this the covenantal approach, primarily because covenant theology teaches that there is only one people of God, one people of God. There's only one church, and that both Jews and Gentiles are brought together in Christ. So, there you have it. There you have it. I'm not done yet. I'm just giving you a summary of what I've said so far in case you're confused. You're not get to go home yet. Jesus answered the disciples' questions about the kingdom by speaking about the power of the kingdom, namely the spirit, the king of the kingdom, namely himself, and the extent of the kingdom, namely the world. But now, as the disciples are listening, they are probably thinking about the overwhelming nature of this calling. Wouldn't you be overwhelmed to some extent? Go into all the world and tell them about me? Oh, is that all? I think at this point, the disciples needed some assurance, some confidence, which takes us into verse 9. A powerful confirmation. Verse 9. It's one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. 
And when he had said these things, what things? You will be my witnesses all over the world. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. As the disciples are trying to process the words of Jesus, they are given the privilege of witnessing what is undoubtedly the most impactful, the most consequential, and the most powerful confirmation they could have received. In the midst of whatever confusion they might have had, and in the midst of whatever doubts they might have entertained, this happens. The resurrected Lord is taken up in a cloud and he goes out of their sight. They witnessed the ascension of the Lord Jesus into the heavenly places. Here we have at least three confirmations or encouragements that I want to share with you. These were encouragement and confirmations for the disciples and for us as well. Please don't miss these. First, the ascension of Jesus was a confirmation that Jesus is the king approved by the father. How many kings did Israel have? A whole bunch. That's the answer. That's the technical answer. A whole bunch. How many of them fulfilled the role to perfection? Think about the best king, David. He failed miserably. And you know how we know this? Because they all died. Not only did they die, they stayed dead. Their bodies decomposed. But here's a new king. Here's a new king. I would venture to say that as the disciples saw Jesus being lifted up, their minds went back to the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. I cannot know that for sure. But at least my mind went back to John chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Consider what Jesus said in verse 9 of John 17. This is what Jesus prayed to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Talk about answered prayer. Here is the Lord of glory being lifted up back into the presence of God where he belongs. Jesus was indeed restored, vindicated, and glorified at this very moment. Second, this was a confirmation that Jesus rules with incorruptible life. Unlike the kings of the world, unlike the kings of the earth, our King Jesus is not subject to decay. He is not subject to illnesses. He is not subject to fatigue, viruses, or death. He lives forever. And unlike the kings like Saul, David, Solomon, and all the kings that follow, our King Jesus is not subject to moral corruption, but rules in absolute and perfect righteousness. And he will do so for all eternity. He can't and he won't be deceived by sin. In fact, through his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin. And this was confirmed in the ascension. But let me give you a third confirmation or encouragement. This was a confirmation. Listen to this. Now it gets personal. The ascension of Jesus was a confirmation that in 
our flesh, we will see the Lord. Don't miss that point. Let me ask you a few questions. How was Jesus raised from the dead? Bodily. Some people don't understand that. His actual physical body, not just the spirit, his body came out of the grave. His body was raised from the grave. Thomas, the doubting Thomas, touched his wounds. And when the disciples came back from fishing, they had a little breakfast. And the Bible says that Jesus took the bread and gave it to them. And to the disciples, Jesus said, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. This was after the resurrection. He wasn't a ghost. He was not a floating spirit. Jesus rose from the dead with a new glorified body. Now let's take a few moments to consider the massive implications that this has for us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, let us think about our union. Our union with the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that by faith, we are united with Christ. We're one with Christ. Let me explain what that means. Jesus died in our place, correct? This means yes. Yes, thank you. Jesus died in our place. He died for us. Therefore, our union with Christ means that his death is our death. Our death. As Jesus died for sin, we also have died to sin. And all because of our union with Christ. Amen? Praise God. Well, if this is true of the death of Jesus, isn't this also true of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus? If we are united, if we are one with Christ in his death, Aren't we also united to Christ in his eternal life? And how did Jesus rise from the dead? As we just saw, he did so in his physical body. Jesus is forever, listen to this, Jesus is forever humanity and divinity joined in perfect, inseparable union. He will forever be the God-man. Therefore, brothers and sisters, because of the ascension of Jesus, the God-man, we can also say that humanity, humanity has ascended on high. You and I, with Jesus, because of our union with Christ, we have also ascended. Humanity is now at the right hand of the Father. What did Adam do? The first Adam? Adam? Because of his sin, he took us out of the presence of God. And what did Jesus do? Well, because of his obedience, he brings us into the presence of God. Therefore, listen, our very physical bodies will one day also ascend on high. Not just your spirit, your physical body will be in the presence of the Lord. Because of our union with Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, we can say with Job, 
And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Listen, Christian, the day Jesus loses his physical body in heaven will be the day you and I lose our hope of resurrection, but that day will never come. Jesus is forever the God man. He will never lose his divinity. He will never lose his humanity. Humanity has been redeemed. Therefore, our bodily resurrection from the dead is guaranteed. All believers who have ever died in the Lord will be raised. Their bodies restored and death will be no more. Praise the Lord. Humanity has been redeemed in Christ. He is the first fruits. Believers will follow him into glory. As one theologian said, and I quote, the ascension of Jesus bridges our present world and that of the age to come. What a hope we have in the risen Lord. What a hope we have in the ascended Christ. As one hymn put it, you have raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with you in glory stand. Jesus reigns adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in your ascension, we by faith behold our own. As Ephesians says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I ask you, my dear brothers and sisters, now that Christ has lived in perfect obedience to the law, died in the place of sinners, rose from the, grave to, from the grave to a new life and ascended on high into the presence of the Father, who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? No, in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, which leads us into our third point, an indestructible promise, an indestructible promise. Consider verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Have you noticed? Have you noticed how angels always show up in very important moments? An angel appeared to announce the birth of Jesus. Angels appeared during the birth of Jesus. Angels also appeared outside of the tomb during the resurrection of Jesus. And now as Jesus ascends into heaven, guess what? Angels show up. They don't miss a thing. They don't miss a thing. But here God speaks a promise through the angels, a promise that comes with indestructible force. Now, I intentionally skipped verse 7 until now. In that verse, Jesus gives the disciples the first part of his answer to their question about the kingdom. Here's what he said. It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. Consider the title that I have given this sermon, Kingdom Restored. And then I included the word already. Kingdom restored already. If you were here last Sunday, you know where I'm going with this. 
I'm thinking about the already not yet category in mind. I believe we should understand verse seven as a reference to the not yet aspect of the kingdom of our Lord. In other words, the restoration of the kingdom has already started. It is already in progress. That's the already, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. The kingdom is being restored already as the spirit continues to call men and women and children from every land and language to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. God is making all things new as we speak. And guess what? Jesus will return. The same Jesus that was taken up in the clouds will return in the same way. There is a second coming of Christ at which point the kingdom will be fully restored to its final and eternal glory. It is coming, but not yet. Not yet. So it is not for us to know the times and seasons of when this will happen. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to do the math like some people have, right? He's coming in a certain time. Don't put a date on it. Don't speculate. Don't obsess over the end. So as we listen to the promise of the second coming through the mouth of the angels, let us also listen to the warning embedded in these words. What's the warning? Here's the warning. Don't try to figure out the timing of the second coming. Rather, be faithful with the time you have been given on earth. Live faithfully. Live faithfully. He will return. But live faithfully in the moment. As verse 12 will make clear, the disciples did not stay looking up forever, trying to speculate about the end. What they saw and what they heard was enough. The Lord is king. He will return. In the meantime, let's go serve him by engaging in kingdom work. So let me give you a few words of exhortations. Exhortation and we'll, we'll close. The first one, it's kind of a reminder, actually. The first one is, is simple. We preach Christ, not ourselves. Sometimes we can forget. We preach Christ, not ourselves. You will be my witnesses. We only have one job. It's to know Christ and to make him known. The church doesn't exist to entertain people. The church doesn't exist to entertain unbelievers or believers. We don't want clowns in the church. And I have a story to tell you about that, but I'll save that for some other time. It's a very interesting one. The church exists for one reason, to point people to Christ. If you are not a believer this morning, let me just tell you from the bottom of my heart and because I, I love you that if you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. There's no hope outside of him. What other person can give you the hope of eternal life? Who has been raised from the dead? Who died for our sins? And sins we all have many, but hope we only have one. His name is Jesus. He died under the wrath of God. And then he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And if you believe in him, the Bible says you will be united to him. And the same glory that he has, you will also share. But apart from him, there is no life, only death. The second word of exhortation is this. The spirit is our strength, not our circumstances. The spirit is our strength, not our circumstances. You will receive what? power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
I invite you to meditate upon this particular truth. If you are discouraged by what is going on in the world, let me, let me invite you to meditate on this truth. The church, the church neither stands nor advances upon the shoulders of favorable political or social conditions. It has never been the case. The church has never been dependent on government or the acceptance of society. Never, never. Why? Because the power comes from the spirit. And the one who builds the church is Christ, not a president, not a king. The power of the church has never been granted to her by men. Our power as believers is in the spirit. And let me ask you this. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, we see in verse 8 that Jesus does give us an answer to that question. Notice the order of the words. First, we must receive the spirit. Second, we go and witness about Jesus. What does that tell you? Well, it tells us that the spirit's ministry is to point us to Christ so that in turn, we may point others to Christ. That is how we know that we are filled with the spirit. That's how you know that a church is filled with the spirit when Christ is center, when we make much of Christ. And this should be our most prayed prayer. Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we may know Christ and make him known. And finally, and we'll finish with this, we walk by faith, not by sight. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus is out of our sight. He is out of our sight. Jesus is not meant to be looked upon with physical eyes anymore, at least not now. This is why in the Bible, faith and sight are set as mutually exclusive. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. One day, you and I won't need our faith because we will see Jesus with our physical eyes. In our flesh, we will see the Lord. But today we need faith because we can't see him. We can only believe in him. As the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And we won't see Jesus until he returns. And brothers and sisters, let me join the man dressed in white robes and say, as long as we are in this world, let us not look for Jesus with our physical eyes. We won't find him because he's at the right hand of the father. But this is faith, the conviction of the things we cannot see. So let us live in the power of the Holy Spirit who is invisible and who guides us into greater and deeper understanding of God's written word. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have. This is what we have. Let us not grow weary in returning of returning to this book over and over and over again. We were not there with the disciples as Jesus was lifted up, but we do have the faithful, inerrant, and trustworthy testimony of the written word of God. So let us continue to believe all the days of our lives. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet timely reminder that Jesus is not here. He has ascended and he's ruling 
the world from his throne. But at the same time, we have not been left alone, but we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one who guides us into the truth and the one who exalts Jesus in our lives. And Father, we, we thank you for the promise of resurrection and for the ascension of Christ. For we know that as he himself ascended on high in the body, we too will one day ascend and the dead will be raised and we will be with the Lord forever. And so we join the words of John and say, come Lord Jesus, come soon. But in the meantime, help us to be faithful. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.